Hey everyone, welcome to the Cloud Talking, the podcast that meets members of the cloud community. I'm your host, Martin Coupland. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about hybrid cloud ecosystems and also a cursory mention for Toys R Us with Kenny Lowe. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Elgato, for providing awesome audio and video equipment. So hi everyone. So our guest today is Kenny Lowe. Um, so he's a senior manager with Dell. Uh, and today we're going to be speaking to Kenny uh, about all things hybrid cloud, as well as um, some of the community projects that, that Kenny's involved in, as well as his uh, career to date. So first of all, hi Kenny, thanks for joining us. Um, why don't you just give us a quick introduction about yourself? Sure, thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. So my name is Kenny Lowe. I am a five-time Microsoft MVP in Azure Hybrid Technologies. I've been working in IT for about, I guess, 15 or 16 years now. Uh, time flies. And I've done everything from um, Active Directory and Exchange Admin for large banks through to Senior Sysadmin at AAA video games companies, working for large newspaper and magazine publishers. I've worked in service providers. And for the last three and a half years, uh, I've been at Dell working on our partner-focused hyperconverged infrastructure offerings, which includes Microsoft solutions like Azure Stack Hub and Azure Stack HCI. So what do I do these days? Well, I guess mostly I sign off the holidays and expenses for people who are far smarter than me. Um, but uh, really, no, I, uh, I lead a couple of branches of what we call the GEOS teams at Dell. So GEOS stands for Global Engineering Outreach Specialists, and that name wasn't chosen arbitrarily. Um, it does describe what we do. We are a global team. We are engineering experts. Uh, we are deeply engaged in outreach activities. That's internal partner and community focused. Uh, and we specialize in specific products where we are the domain experts. Um, our overarching mission, if I had to sum it up, is to help. Uh, and that's helping our internal teams understand our propositions or with complex customer opportunities. It's helping our partners with their uh, strategies with Dell and our ecosystem partners. And it's helping the wider community to understand the ever evolving and changing hybrid landscape and try and remove a lot of the FUD surrounding it. So fundamentally, I guess we're a team of community focused experts, um, but more than that, a team of great communicators. That's really what I look for um, when hiring. That's really what the team is. It's really good communicators, experts in what we do. We want to make sure that everything we talk about is real. So not fluff, not pie in the sky, not just mm -hmm. architecture, uh, but real and actionable um, and making complex topics understandable and consumable. That's kind of where we are. Okay, great. Well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for... Um, the introduction, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into some more of that in, in a little bit. Um, but first of all, um, pro probably the hardest question of the next, um, you know, kind of 45 minutes or so, I guess. Um, um, so, you know, just to start with an icebreaker. Um, so like, like I've asked guests before, um, so what do you tell your non-techie friends and family what you do for a living? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really easy. I say I work in IT. And that's about it. But um, I, I, 
have give, long ago given up on trying to explain what it is I do because yeah. it's too complex. You've got to keep it high level. Um, where I try to keep it is that I work outside of the consumer space, so I'm not good at fixing laptops and printers <laughs> and things like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to describe what I do to my friends and family. I do know, though, that my mom once said that uh, she was at the dentist and she saw a magazine on the table there saying what the top careers to future-proof you uh, into the future were. And the top one there was cloud architect, and that was my job title at the time. So that made her yeah. very happy. Uh, <laughs> and she's not pried too much since then. She just knows <laughs> good, secure jobs, so we're happy. Yeah, stuff. I do stuff. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, I actually think you should go with um, what you said at the beginning of your intro and just say, well, actually, I just sign off expenses and approval. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's a nice, easy, nice, easy way to de- describe it. Um, okay, cool. So, you, you know, let's let's move on to, um, you know, your career and talk about that a, a little bit then. So, you know, kind of got a good idea of, of what you uh, do today and some of the industries that you've worked in, but... How did you actually get started in technology? Was it something that was quite natural for you to just fall into or did it end up being an accident that you started in a a technology role? Yeah, I was lucky that I was born in Dundee and a lot of people will not say I was lucky to be born in Dundee, but I absolutely (laughs) will say that because back then the ZX81s were being built in the Timex factory Mm -hmm. uh, in Dundee. Um, And so technology was a very natural thing for children to start to get into back in the the mid early 80s uh, which was not a normal thing around the country so because we had those being built there we got more exposure to that i will say that a bunch of those zx81s fell out of the back of the factory into the hands of uh, let's say enterprising young children who then went on to found the video game industry in dundee which is why so many things like a grand theft auto i wonder where they got their ideas from uh, were founded in uh, dundee (laughs) Um, but yeah, I got my first computer when I was about four in the mid 80s, um, and I've never looked back. So I always knew I wanted to work in technology right from the very youngest age. That was what I really enjoyed doing. So in my spare time, the only things I did were read and play with computers. And that was about it. So when I went to university, um, actually, it, that was a difficult one for me because I didn't know what course I would or should do. Mm-hmm. Um, the choices available were really electrical and electronic engineering or programming. And those yeah. were the two choices. It was a, a binary choice. Do you want to go down hardware or software? Um, I chose the hardware path. So I did a couple of years of electrical and electronic engineering, but it wasn't for me. So I switched to computer science and did some software engineering and it wasn't for me. So I dropped out and worked in Toys R Us for a while. Um, <laughs> And eventually I found a role in a bank, which was a very junior entry-level help desk position doing Active Director and Exchange Admin. I had no idea about AD or Exchange, anything like that. It was just help desk, come in, we'll train you. Um, So I went and did that. And that's how I learned about the career path of sysadmin and uh, and that whole career path. It just wasn't on the table when I was looking Mm. at university. And I lost a good few years, actually, to that career path not being... uh, available to me yeah okay, okay. That's, that's interesting and so what, what one of the things I often think of is you know is, is where we are today a natural evolution of the roles that we've done because yeah, I've kind of been similar to be honest I worked on a help desk and got into you know desktop admin systems admin and um, consultant architect manager 
um, and, and now, uh, you know, cloud native um, and, and DevOps and, and such like. So, you know, but I, I often step back and think, you know, where, where we always destined to get here from a technology mm-hmm. perspective. I guess it's easy to say say that now, but. You know, I, I still know people that are, you know, not not at the start of their careers that are very happy to maintain Windows or Linux servers and not really do anything else. So, you know, a lot of it, I think, is around the drive personally that you have to, you know, go into different sets of technology. But when, when, when did you decide that cloud was where you wanted to be? Because I, I guess with the experience you'd have already got the time, cloud was being talked about quite seriously you could have easily gone on to do something else in the in the industry there's lots of different roles available in the in the tech industry so when, when did you decide that that cloud and, and i guess you know thinking about specifically the things that you, you do in the, you've done in the past few years hybrid cloud was really the direction that you wanted to go in yeah i was working in a service provider at the time um delivering what we called cloud services to our mm-hmm. customers it wasn't cloud it was running a hosted vps it was running virtualization uh, in our data centers and the rise of azure and aws and others was of serious concern uh, to us and our whole business model yeah. um so it was really investigating how can we compete with public cloud that was my first foray into understanding cloud was seeing how can we survive in this changing industry And over time, that evolved into how can we integrate with public cloud? How can we start to leverage this and bring it into our data centers? And that's how I got into the sort of Azure stack and Microsoft hybrid cloud track there was how can we bring Azure into our data centers and then provide a consistent, seamless experience for customers? But it did start off with that sort of hyper competitive uh, view there. (laughs) How do we we survive in this industry? Um, And it's interesting for service providers because uh, actually, it, it's it's not that challenging to survive, I think, if you position yourself well. Um, oh, you know, I'll, let's leave this for the hybrid cloud chat here because there's an yeah. awful lot of interesting things we can talk about around hybrid <laughs> cloud and service providers. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got into cloud. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, you know, I I asked um, I asked this on a, a couple of the the episodes that I've recorded already, but. You know how how important do you think university was in your technology journey? Because I, I didn't go to university at all, so it's it's very difficult for me to say whether it would or wouldn't have benefited what, what I do day to day, day to day now. Um, but I, I'm interested in in your thoughts on whether whether university helped you get to where you are today. For me personally, it was hugely, hugely unimportant. Um, <laughs> it was it was a black hole in time for me. It was trying to figure out what I should do and where I should go. And university didn't offer the um, the career uh, paths or the lear- learning paths for the career I've ended up in. There wasn't mm. a university path for ending up in this uh, career for me. Um, does that mean I think university is not important? No, of course not. Um, it depends what you're doing. Most of my family are doctors. Of course, they need to go to yeah. university. My wife is a software engineer uh, and university was hugely valuable to her and very important to her. But um, the path that I went down, a modern apprenticeship or something like that would have been far better, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and this you know this is one of the things I've always uh, toyed with because as you uh, as you know from the the time we we first met a few years ago, I was talking about automation 
in, in a service provider, actually. You know, and that was all about scalability and how we do things in a more predictive way. Um, I guess I, I remember that event uh, quite, <laughs> quite clearly. Um, and, you know, I guess I, I, I have that software engineering uh, background. So, so it does make me wonder, like you say, you why software engineer as well. And she went to, to university and that was important. I, I've been self-taught from a software mm-hmm. engineering perspective, no doubt from people who did go to university um, um, and, and have written a lot of the content that I've then consumed and, and picked up on. Um, but but I, I, I now think that certainly where I am at, at this point in time, I don't think you'd be able to tell much of a difference talking to Two software engineers, one that went to university, and one, yeah, and one hundred percent. And I'm not talking from a, a knowledge perspective. I was more thinking from a career path yeah, perspective. There, um, knowledge-wise, absolutely, you can self-teach and get to the same state or, or beyond than going to university for software engineering. Absolutely, but for her specifically, she did a video game technology course again, yeah. Dundee video games, yeah. uh, and from there, <laughs> there were defined paths into video game companies in the city as well. Um, so that was a very structured path there to come in, learn this, go into the industry and follow through there. So um, having the, the structure in place to follow a specific career path, that's important. You don't go to university just to learn something and hope hope that you'll yeah. get somewhere yeah. in life. It has to have a structured path structure, through yeah. beyond. Is, is that is that somewhere where, uh, I, I guess, not the, the, the royal way, uh, certainly nothing me and you are ever uh, going to change, I don't think, but... Is that certainly where you think we could do better maybe as an industry or as education providers? Because it seems to me that um, I think it's got better, but unless you want to do software engineering, there are very few courses you could do at university that have that follow through to a, a, a role at an organization afterwards. I mean, you might learn a little bit about architecture and business analysis, you know, those kind of things. But you, I, I don't think you could do a course in some of the other skills that you need in certain other technology roles and then have that followed up with role afterwards like you can with software engineering. So do you think that's somewhere where we could maybe, uh, I guess, get better at improving that outcome for people? Because not everyone's made to be a software engineer. I think you have to be a yeah, certain definitely. type of person to be a software engineer. Um, and we obviously have quite a skills gap in in technology at, at the minute. And I certainly see this as a as a hiring manager. I'm sure you've seen it as well. Um, so yeah, what what you know, what do you think we could change as either the industry or with education providers to to help improve the skills of people coming, I guess, through the system. Yeah. Um, so from a royal we perspective, actually, I think there is a lot that we can do, and uh, we as a community and we as individuals can do. Um, so I also think there's a big skills gap. And I think that you um, you address that from a young age. The education system is not addressing that. That needs to be done mm-hmm. from folks in industry willing to put in the time and effort to, to help address that. So God, how many years ago now? Um, three, four, six or seven years ago, maybe, um, I helped found the first code club in Scotland which is basically a a community-led volunteer course for teaching children the fundamentals of programming. Um, But beyond that, it's teaching them the fundamentals of technology and how to understand computers and technology and just using these tools better. 
Um, so not with a view to making them software engineers, but with a view to helping them understand how they can use computers to create, not just consume. Mm -hmm. um, we grew that from one code club to there are several hundred in Scotland now, um, which is awesome. All volunteer run and all plugging a gap, which is present in the education system just now. Um, and I don't know if it's a gap that the education system really can plug because it's taking yeah, no. industry knowledge and experience that teachers won't necessarily have mm -hmm. and explaining how you can leverage technology to just make your day-to-day -day better and easier regardless of what industry you go into. Yeah. I think that having some sort of programming skills or an ability to script or ability to, I don't know, use VBA in Excel or whatever will stand you in good stead regardless of what career you do. Um, and so teaching those skills young is good helping people understand that there are multiple paths forward through technology is important as well. So yes, we can all help. It takes time and effort and it's a, it's a generational shift that will yeah. take a full generation to come into effect. There's nothing we can do in a year two, five years. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's finding things like this code club, coder dojo initiatives like that to put time and effort into, to help the next generation. Yeah, I, I agree. And like you say, I think the key thing that people often miss in there is we're, we're, we're sometimes maybe asking our teachers too much to be able to learn industry knowledge to pass on mm. to younger people. And I think that is where we as the community or we as the industry can can really help out and get closer to education bodies to, to help do that. Um, I, I know I've been to some local schools to... Uh, including my sons to uh, talk about what I uh, was doing, and, and and that was certainly more daunting than speaking in front of three thousand people at <laughs> TechEd a few years ago. Um, some of the questions that come in from um, some some six to ten year olds was uh, certainly uh, stumbling <laughs> to say the least. Um, but yeah, I think we can do a lot of stuff like that to help you know make people realize that actually all this stuff that you're using and consuming day to day, you know, so, someone like me designs architects and writes that stuff so you can make it work. And wouldn't it be really cool to be involved in in making that happen? Um, so I think that's somewhere that we could we could really uh, help the industry. And by the way, this comes back to one of the earlier questions which was how did i get into into technology which was i started playing with stuff when i was very young yeah um, but what i was playing with was very low level um and so what i was learning was very low level as well and if i broke something i had to learn how to fix it yeah there's a, <laughs> a an assumption that kids today growing up with technology just get it just understand it know everything about it and actually i think we've gone through a bit of a bell curve shift where there was a time where, yes, if you grew up with technology, you would learn everything about it because you had to, there was no other choice, mm -hmm. but it's become so abstracted away now that it's really, kids are, are growing up as consumers of content on technology, not users of the technology itself. Yeah. Um, and so we have to, to help get down that stack again and understand some more fundamentals, not because we want to push these specific tech careers on them, because it really helps through uh, all careers to understand what you're using not just how to watch a video on it yeah and i i agree i agree it's uh, yeah I, I think certainly certainly my generation we like to play with stuff and, and that meant you figured out how it worked and i i look at my six and three year old now and how they interact with technology they certainly know how to consume it and use it they get user interfaces which i think is more kind of a light bulb moment for me was was just how important clean UI design was. You know, I'm not a designer at all. 
um, as as my um, attempts to help with drawing in in homework can attest. I'm certainly not a drawing design-based person, but I think you can appreciate what goes into that effort when you see mm-hmm. young people who who never picked up a device in their life instantly know how to use it and how to navigate and and how to bring up a keyboard, you know, how to move between screens. And that really is a testament to another important part of the, the industry as well. Um, so, so let's move on to um, talking about your um, guest topic, which is hybrid cloud. So, you know, let's start off very basic for people. How would you define hybrid cloud? Oh, that's not basic. You're starting off hard. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so let's define different cloud terms first. And these aren't all industry standards. These aren't all completely defined. There are mm-hmm. lots of opinions in here. But for me, um, cloud, private cloud, public cloud, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud all have specific uh, definitions. And I try to work around those. So public cloud is really limited to Azure, AWS, Google now, I just talk about those three. There are a couple others in there. You could talk about um, whatever software got rebranded to and Oracle Cloud in there as well. But broadly, um, it's those big three. So that's public cloud providers there just now. Um, Hybrid cloud is really all about having a consistent experience, both on-premises and at the edge, and it was a public cloud provider. So it's not just linking together what you have on premises and in the public cloud and saying, now oh, I'm a hybrid cloud. It's having consistent tooling mechanisms, uh, services, ways of developing, ways of managing, ways of doing everything, both in the cloud and on premises to deliver that consistent experience. That's where I would place mm-hmm. hybrid cloud. Multi-cloud is when you have two disparate systems uh, providing cloud experiences. So for example, maybe you have um, extreme example, because no one would ever do this, but you have Azure Stack HCI on-premises and AWS is your cloud provider. Both can provide cloud experiences. You link them up with, uh, with some networking uh, and off you go. That's a multi-cloud experience. So multi-cloud, multiple clouds interacting together. Mm-hmm. Uh, hybrid cloud, basically the same experience extended to wherever you need it to go is how I would uh, frame yeah. it. Okay. And do we, <clears throat> I guess, just kind of extending on that then, because, you know, multi-cloud certainly comes up as a conversation uh, all the time. And, and I've spent many hours <laughs> talking to people about the, the pros and cons of, of multi-cloud. But is is the decision to adopt a hybrid cloud approach, pure, you know, purely based on the needs of the organization? Um, and, and what kind of factors do we often take into account when we're deciding whether we are moving to a hybrid cloud approach or we are moving to a public cloud approach. Um, so first thing there is there is no just public cloud approach mm-hmm. uh, going forward. I think that uh, if you look at where organizations are moving, public cloud is a strong part of that, but it's not the only part of it. In fact, go to azure.com right now just open up your web browser, go to azure.com uh, and you'll see what it says there, which is nothing to do with public clouds. So azure.com, yep. I'm going to do this. So what does it say? I'm taking my life in my hands here because they might have updated this. Nope, <laughs> it says on-premises, hybrid, multi-cloud or at the edge, create secure future-ready cloud solutions on Azure. So it doesn't say deploy these in our data center. It doesn't say public cloud first even or public cloud only. It says on-premises first, yep. hybrid second, multi-cloud, all these things because being able to deliver 
these services wherever they need to be is super important. And we've seen the ramp up in uh, take up of public cloud services, Azure and AWS, and that has ramped up very quickly. It is tapering. It is not growing as fast as it has. The mm -hmm. reason for that is because <laughs> not every workload goes in there and a lot of the workloads that can go in there are already in there. Yep. So then what is that next point of value? What is that next point that you do? Um, and just taking what you've run on-premises for the last 5, 10, 15 years and plugging that into a public cloud gives you zero value. Mm -hmm. So your first question there, um, what are this, the decision points around adopting hybrid cloud? Number one, it's, um, it's going to be aligned to your public cloud strategy. So if your public cloud strategy is AWS, then your hybrid cloud strategy is going to be nothing to do with Azure Stack, for example. And yep. um, that makes no sense. It'll, you'll be looking at the AWS on-premises variants and um, other things which integrate with that, like uh, VMware Cloud Foundation, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very much ecosystem driven there. Yep. Um, why are customers approaching uh, or adopting that? Well, number one, it's to remove silos of management knowledge and uh, capabilities. Mm -hmm. You'll know this yourself, um, that within lots of organizations, there are the folks that run the on-premises stuff and the folks that run the cloud stuff. <laughs> yeah. And these are two <laughs> silos and they push hard against each other as well in terms of how you manage, in terms of how you inter integrate and interact, but also in terms of budget. Yeah. Um, and uh, all of these things provide create stress and strain within an organization. Uh, and actually the move to a hybrid cloud approach can remove a lot of that internal friction. Um, and then the on-premises and the cloud folks, actually, it's just cloud, um, have the same approach. Is that an easy journey? No. Um, but it's one that a lot of organizations are going through just now. And it's good to be able to say to those on-premises folks um, who have a very strong place to play in this, uh, you don't have to move everything to Azure. You don't have to give up all these skills that you've learned. Actually, a lot of the stuff that you know is valid in the hybrid cloud world as well. Um, and so it's not a reskilling, it's an upskilling, um, and then being part of that hybrid cloud uh, experience there. But the other thing while I remember, and I don't want to forget, is that you mentioned multi-cloud as well. Mm -hmm. Multi-cloud does come up a lot, and there are so many ways that you can, you can um, uh, describe that as well. For example, is running Office 365 and AWS a multi-cloud strategy. You could argue it is. Mm -hmm. I think you're getting a bit broad at that point. I like to focus more on the, the similar services. So yep. um, not taking just anything that runs in the cloud, uh, but you know the AWS and Azure's and services that you run in those. Um, but what we've tend to find is that multi-cloud is by accident, not by design. It's yep. happened because of shadow IT, because <laughs> marketing have gone and put something in AWS and IT have gone and implemented Azure and all these different things are butting heads internally now. So multi-cloud tends to be by accident. Hybrid cloud is always by design because um, it's a conscious choice to put that in, Yeah, uh, I would say. Yeah, so, so, so I think, you know, the, the, the next answer, you know, probably from both of our perspectives being in the, the Microsoft stacks, probably, probably a slightly biased view, um, I would suggest, but we'll, we'll talk about it anyway. Um, so, so I actually think, and I really like that you mentioned that um, message on the on the homepage of the Azure website, because I've pointed people to that before. Um, pe people tend to forget that when, when you say the word Azure, I, I, I tend to try and explain it as being a suite of solutions that cover on-premise, hybrid, multi-cloud, or traditional public cloud. Um, 
and people are like, oh, right, okay. Um, and I actually think a long time ago, Microsoft got this really nailed on by saying, you know, we, we know people are not going to move everything to the cloud because we've been on that journey and we can't do it. Um, as most organizations will find out at some point or another that you can't just move everything. Um, and as you said, it's about the right workload in the, in the right place. But, you, you know, what... What what's your what's your opinion on you know the the whole Azure as an ecosystem? I guess is the best way to yeah. to describe it. Um, you know that that seems to be the right approach as far as I can tell, and I'm certainly not a marketing um, expert, <laughs> um, and I'm certainly not a hybrid cloud expert. And I'll be I'll be honest, if I'm going to write or build anything, it will generally in a container or a function mm-hmm. app or something like that um yeah but, but but say you write your um your container or your function um that's leveraging maybe it's deployed on aks so you are yeah. used to deploying into aks or you're using azure functions so you're used to deploying into there azure stack hci includes aks and azure functions so actually your development deployment and management there as a, a developer is the same so that is a nice hybrid approach there yeah, definitely. So, so what's the uh, you know? I remember, I remember us talking about Azure Stack when we first met. It was pretty new then, right? I think, I think it was yeah. it was partners that knew about it, and people at Microsoft, and generally not many other people knew about it. Um, yep. You know, I, I'll be honest. I've not spent a huge amount of time with Azure Stack, other than understanding the the fundamentals and knowing that, like you just said there, if I write something for for Azure, it will work in the same feature on, on Azure Stack. So, what 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 is part of the Azure Stack suite today, and and how are those different components used within your kind of day to day, um, day to day business as usual IT? Yeah. So just first of all, to cover the, um, the Azure ecosystem, because I think it's an important point you raise. Um, Microsoft have a leg up on all the other public cloud providers. Um, so a leg up over AWS and Google, because Microsoft was born in the enterprise, they were born in the mm-hmm. data center. So they grew up yeah. in the enterprise, in the data center with the likes of Dell and with all of us working in IT there. And they grew out to Azure and that was their journey there. AWS and Google were both born in the cloud companies and they're starting to struggle to learn how to extend back on premises now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that does give Microsoft a, a leg up there, especially in terms of existing relationships and yeah. <laughs> licensing agreements. Let's yeah. get uh, yeah. dirty there, but in terms of that, next have to have a leg up. But you're absolutely right that um, labeling services, whether they run in a Microsoft data center or outside as Azure is fundamentally important because we need to get away from terminology like moving to the cloud because that implies that you have to take your workloads from where they are and put them somewhere else to get some sort of value. Yeah. Actually, the conversation should be, where does the workload need to run? Where do I need to put it to deliver what it needs to deliver? And you shouldn't have to move it into a Microsoft data center or an Amazon data center or whoever's in order to do that. Um, so I think this idea of Azure Anywhere is really, really important. In terms of the Azure Stack Suite now, uh, yeah, it's gone on a, a whirlwind journey over the last five years. So I guess <laughs> it must have been over five years now that we had that partner event where I was yeah, talking about Azure yeah. Stack for the first time. Um, and there was only one product then, and it was called Azure Stack. Um, that has since evolved, and the artist formerly known as Azure Stack is now called Azure Stack Hub. Uh, and Azure Stack refers to a portfolio of products. 
Is that confusing? Yes. Microsoft is terrible at naming. A lot of my life is spent explaining the different Azure Stack products, but just very quickly, there's Azure Stack Hub, Azure Stack HCI, and Azure Stack Edge. Azure Stack Hub is targeted at when you want to use Azure, but you cannot. That's mm-hmm. fundamentally it. So maybe it's because of data sovereignty or regulatory compliance reasons. You cannot even connect to Azure, but you still want to use these Azure services and Azure ways of doing things. Maybe because your developers are used to developing in Azure. Yeah. Um, and you have applications which you want to deploy in Azure, but you can't put that into a Microsoft data center. You can't even use the management tools to manage it uh, where you are. That's what Azure Stack Hub is there for. And we see that mostly across um, finance companies and defense and government and things like that, uh, where it can operate fully disconnected, never even touch the internet, never even touch Azure, but still give you Azure in your data center. Yeah. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, there is Azure Stack Edge, which is a one new appliance that you buy direct from Microsoft. So you go into the Azure portal and you say, I want an Azure Stack Edge, and they'll ship it to you. It's one server. You will be billed for it through your Azure subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it always comes with either a GPU or an Intel ARIA FPGA. And that's because it's specifically there to do video and image inferencing at the edge. Mm-hmm. So you develop some video and image inferencing app, containerize it, deploy it into Azure Stack Edge, and it can process video and image data as it comes in without having to use up all of your bandwidth to go to Azure first, then come back. Um, so that's its raison d'etre. Processing video and image data and being a data mover is what it's there for. Um, and then most recently, we have Azure Stack HCI, which is now just over one year old uh, in its latest guise. And fundamentally, it's designed to bring Azure services wherever you want to run them, but leave the management of that in Azure. So it decouples the workload from the management. It decouples the the data and the service and management plane from each other. It basically says, you want to deploy this Azure service, like Azure Virtual Desktop, for example. Okay, where do you want to deploy it? You want it in your branch office over there? Great, deploy it there. And you can still manage it exactly as you would if it was in a Microsoft data center from azure.com. And this decoupling of the services from from the Microsoft data centers is the fundamental big shift forward in Azure that we're seeing now. It's saying you don't have to compromise on where you put your workloads. You can put them wherever they need to run to deliver what you need. And you can manage them exactly the same as if they were in the Azure cloud. And that's huge, I think. Yeah, I I agree. And I I would even go you know, a little bit further than that as well. And, you know, when you look at some specific technologies, you know, two, two I can think of right off the back. Um, Security Center works across hybrid workloads. Um, yep. Azure Arc is not just across hybrid, but also multi-cloud. If you run some of those yep. services in, in other cloud, Microsoft doesn't care where you run them. And I think that's a, that's a great message for enterprise customers because, you know, there's also a recognition there that, of course, we want you to use the Azure ecosystem, but if you don't um, and you want to manage it as a, you did with your other enterprise tools using a Microsoft suite of tools, then we have services available to do that for you as well. Um, and, yeah. and I think that's really important. Just, you know, kind of on, <clears throat> you know, so, so a term that comes up quite a lot nowadays is app modernization. Uh, and people think about that in, in lots of different ways, but you know, knowing now what we know about Microsoft's, you know, mantra, if, you, if you've not seen it before, it was it was uh, on-premises, hybrid, multi-cloud, or at the edge, create secure, future-ready cloud solutions on Azure. You know, when, when you think about applying app modernization to that, 
a lot of people think app modernization is around rewrite it for the cloud, make it cloud native. But as we were just talking about, you could obviously use AKS, Azure Kubernetes service on uh, on premises and, and connect to it via Azure Arc or, or a Kubernetes service anywhere. Um, as an example. So, you know, for, for me, app modernization is more around making it work within that ecosystem rather than pinning it to on-prem, pinning it to work in a hybrid scenario, pinning it to a multi-cloud scenario, any of those, really. What's your, what's your opinion on app modernization in terms of the kind of hybrid world that, that you work in? It must be quite frustrating, I guess, sometimes to hear people talk about app modernization and only talk about public cloud services. Yeah, um, it can be. But um, so my point of view of app modernization is not as a developer, as a software engineer, it's as someone who's worked in the infrastructure traditionally. Um, and where we are from that perspective is app modernization is about portability. It's yeah. about ease of deployment, ease of lifecycle management of the application. Um, and removing the friction between development and production, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you can imagine the old days of uh, you develop this wonderful new application that's going to save your company a million pounds a year. Uh, you have written this up, you want to take it to IT and deploy it. Um, you know that if you deploy it tomorrow, then it's going to immediately save the company loads of money and you hit your first barrier of what are the dependencies? What are the prerequisites? Here is our company gold image. You may deploy into that. Um, <laughs> and then you start to try to deploy it and it doesn't work. It did on your laptop, but it doesn't on, uh, on the company uh, golden image. So you, you say, oh, that's because you're missing this library and uh, these symbols and you do this, that and the other. Fire it all in and suddenly that golden image is a brown image and uh, no longer a happy thing to work with. Um, and it will never be well supported. It'll be horrible when you come to upgrade it. And that's kind of the pattern of applications in IT for um, forever and a day ago. And what Azure Stack HCI does, what modern, well, what public cloud does, what um, modern on-premises cloud environments do is really remove that friction. And the easiest way to do that is through containers that removes a lot of that friction, but just, having a container uh, or having an application in a container isn't enough. You also have to have a, an environment to deploy that into. So um, not every sysadmin is going to become a, a Kubernetes guru overnight. Um, so one of the joys of the public cloud is getting a managed Kubernetes environment where you can just start consuming it without having mm -hmm. to know everything about Kubernetes. That's what you want on premises as well. So the, the great thing about AKS in Azure Stack HCI as an example, um, is that it's delivered as largely a managed service there as well. So you as the sysadmin don't have to be a Kubernetes guru to give Kubernetes services to your uh, developers. Um, mm -hmm. So you can start to give these services which make their life better and make your life better as a consequence without having to put in a huge amount of effort there as well. Yeah. Um, which is a roundabout way of saying that modernization matters both from the infrastructure and the development perspective and you have to harmonize those, uh, I think. Yeah, I think for, for all of the improvements that we've made in people understanding that the app is around both the code base and the infrastructure, people say app modernization and they instantly think code. They, mm. they rarely, you know, think infrastructure and, and architecture. Um, so, so, you know, hopefully that, that messaging kind of turns around soon and we think of it from a more holistic approach than a, a you know, one-track uh, approach to, to that. Um. 
Okay, so let, let's move on to talk about community. So, you know, we're, we're both heavily involved in the uh, community as, as MVPs, and you've already talked about some of the community um, coding projects that you, you've been in, which, uh, you know, we need to see more of those, I, I think, um, and we talked about that earlier. But what, what made you get started in the community? I mean, you made reference earlier to looking to fill uh, a skills gap and and wanting to sort of address that and and obviously you, you know Dundee itself like you say has got a rich heritage in a lot of ways with with the gaming industry specifically and um, but computing in general and um, was was that kind of an influence to being involved and wanting to, to do more or, or again um, was, was it an accident uh it, it so why did I get involved in the IT community and the Microsoft tech community in in general as well um it was probably selfish it was because <laughs> i i watched lots of talks and videos and went to conferences and sat in audiences and fundamentally i disagreed with a lot of what i heard about <laughs> um and i was like i want to get up there and fix the record i want yep. to make sure that actually what i think and i believe is properly communicated because um from a a thought perspective and um, my mindset perspective, what I was thinking wasn't being represented there. So um, if that was true for me, it was probably true for others. And that has borne out because there's a large community built up around the hybrid cloud now um, mm -hmm. and Azure Stack and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really because I wanted to get my point of view across, not through any altruistic reasons. Um, yeah. But through that, uh, and being involved in the community, my opinion, my approach, and my way of working in the community has shifted fundamentally. Um, and I've met so many wonderful people who are just all about helping and sharing uh, and wanting to guide others that that has just, that's, let's say, rubbed off on me to a large degree. And I want to spend most of my time in the community now mm -hmm. helping others. So you may notice that I have I'm not sharing as much in the community now. I'm not blogging as much, doing videos. I am doing a lot of work with individuals to help them in their community journeys yep. um, behind the scenes. So that's kind of where I'm focused uh, Focused now. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because I think when, when a lot of people think about um, people working in the community, especially um, you know MV, Microsoft MVPs, uh, people, I think, instantly think of, People going to um, conferences, speaking uh, sessions there, speaking at user groups, writing content um, and posting it on a, on a blog, videos, um, uh, podcasts, <laughs> dare I say. <laughs> um, but, but, but actually, you know, I, I agree with you and I've started to do a lot of the, the same as well. I, I, I love writing my blog. I don't do as much of it as I would, would like to, uh, you know, be, be open about that. But there's another element of it as well that certainly for my physical local community, it's not known for technology at, at all. Um, you know, it's an old fishing town in the east coast of, of England and, yeah, you know, for a lot of people, technology is not <laughs> second nature. So, you know, if there's something that I can give back, I, I'm talking to a few people about how I can use my experience and skills to, to help other people. And I think that mentor inside of it, I guess what it boils down to is, is something that people overlook. And I think actually think going back to our conversation earlier about how can we help plug the skills gap and help others, I think mentoring is a huge part of being able to do that. Yeah, 100%. And that's how you get ex explosive growth and change as well. 
I mean, it's it's not that different from the move from being an individual contributor to a manager as well. When yeah. you're an individual contributor, you're focused on what value can I deliver? Uh, how can I uh, do the best in my job here? Being a manager is more about how do I enable others to be their best? How, I, how do yeah. I protect, guide, and enable them to be their best? Um, and by helping 5, 10, 1,500 other people, you're delivering a lot more than you ever could on your own there. So um, I have gone through my community journey to where I am now. And if my MVP journey ends this year or next year or whatever, actually that doesn't matter because mm -hmm. if I can help others, if I can get another three, five, 10 people on theirs, then that's um, much more than the incremental growth that I can have on my own. Yeah, I actually think there's another important point there as well. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to, to go on record and, and say this. Um, I, I got my first MVP award in... Uh, 2020 um so because of the renewal cycle and, and covid it's still officially won award because mm -hmm. um, it's been a little bit longer uh, and and hopefully it, it does get renewed and, and i i think i've done enough to get renewed but a lot of people think it's the be all and uh, an end all and and don't mm -hmm. get me wrong it is amazing to be recognized it is amazing to be able to do the things that we, we can do as, as MVPs and some of the influence that has on the community. But but if it was to go, um, then that, that wouldn't stop me doing the things that I'm I'm doing. I, I did that stuff beforehand and got recognized because of that. And, and I'm eternally grateful for that recognition. Um, but it's definitely not the be all and, and end all like like some people um believe believe it it is. Um you know, community for me is about much more than that. And I think it takes yeah. some people some time to realize that community is about more than just recognition. It's about more than just um, having, I guess, free letters from, from a vendor <laughs> that you, you happen to work with. Again, the recognition's amazing uh, and I wouldn't change that, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't drive me in any particular direction. You know, I, I, I share what I think needs to be shared yeah. Um, and what, what will help people along the way. Yeah. I don't do what I do to be an MVP. I am, I am an MVP because of what I do. It's, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so what, what do you like about the community the most? You know, what, what keeps you involved in the community? Because, you know, I've certainly come across plenty of people that have been involved in the community. And for one reason or another, they, they kind of drop out of the community, um, for, you know, for sometimes personal reasons or sometimes it's just not for them. Um, but for you personally, what, what keeps you driven to, to do things in the community? And what, what do you like the most about dealing and working with the community? Um, I never learn more than when I'm learning from others and working with other people. So I'm continually learning, getting better, um, as a person and as a technologist through this community, um, but also just the sheer number of friends I've made through it as well, yeah. and not like tangential friends or or or, um, or vague friends, but really good friends. I've got um, a few folks coming over from the US and Canada and Germany in a couple months who are all friends from the community coming to visit, and that is um, real good friendship that has been driven out of this shared passion uh, around this, yeah. but what keeps me coming back to the community is a we have a really positive community in this microsoft space here and um, i know of a lot of other communities which are not this positive and inclusive and yeah. um and people focused um 
and this is a really good one that we have. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And I think that um, it's something I want to continue to be associated with. Um, it, it makes me better. Um, I'd like to think that my being associated helps others as well. Um, but it is a community that uh, feeds well and feeds on itself. I, I, I really like the sort of level of humility you can get with being part of the community, I, especially on Twitter, right? The amount of times I've asked a question and included the cloud family hashtag. Um, I, I, I know full well if I'm asking a question about something, there are far more qualified people to to help answer that question than, than I am. And I, and I think, you know, once, you know, some people don't like asking questions like that, and, but I think once you get past that and sort of take the attitude that, you know, you're, you're the dumbest person in the room, so to speak, um, or the virtual room, then, you know, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm very lucky to be part of the community that we are, and there's some great people in the community. Um, and I love how much it keeps growing. You know, every time I look, there's new people posting, um, you know, something that they feel is important to, to share. And I always try and read as much of it as possible. And, and I would say there's rarely a day goes by I don't learn something new um, from someone that's posted something. Um, you know, even if it's something that I think I know and understand pretty well, I always pick up something new. And that, that's one of the things that I really love about being part of the community. It is, it is basically like a, a huge pit of knowledge um, that you can always pick up something new from. Yep, absolutely. And if you were to look at my Twitter banner picture, it's just a big thing of text that says, I basically know nothing. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> so, you know, just to, just to close us um, up then. So what, what sort of projects do you want to, uh, I guess, share um, on here? And we'll make sure we put some links in the uh, description and, and stuff. Is there anything you're particularly working on that you want to um, share or point people towards? So a lot of the stuff I'm working on just now is is planning and behind the scenes and things like that. But two things that I want to give a shout out to. Number one, um, pre-COVID, we had the UK Azure Stack user group running in their Microsoft Reactor in London. At mm -hmm. some point in the next year or so, we want to get that restarted. I think that there are too many virtual events now um, for people to be joining. So starting that up as a virtual event, I think, is a non-starter. But... Um, once we're able to restart and that as an in-person event to bring the Microsoft hybrid cloud community together is absolutely on the, the radar there. Mm -hmm. um, also, my team is going to be starting up some virtual coffee chats um, in the next couple of months or so. So these are just regularly recurring 30-minute um, to an hour meetings, always in the calendar that we will join and anyone that wants to can join um, to just chat about hybrid cloud and any questions, any thoughts, um, will be welcome in there. So we're going to start those out and I'll punt the links out to those to sign up to those in the uh, the community in the not too distant future, but one to look out for. Awesome. Yeah, thanks very much. We'll make sure we get some uh, links to those in the, in the description of the episode. Um, so, so finally then, just to close up, um, where can where can people find um, you online, either via uh, Twitter or, or blog? Yeah, Twitter is probably the best place. So um, Kenny Lowe is my Twitter handle. Easy. Nice, um, nice and original. <laughs> yep. I got in there. Got in there fast. 
That's one of the things. Whenever you see a new service, even if you don't think you'll ever use it, jump in and take your name as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, just in case. And on LinkedIn, I got Kenny Low one, which was annoying. Uh, rather than Kenny Low. Um, so that's my LinkedIn there. Um, my blog is at AzureStacks.tips, although I rarely blog there now. Um, I do have one blog post there pinned at the top, which is about how to screen share effectively with a multi uh, with an ultra wide monitor. Um, yeah. And that is my most viewed blog ever on azurestack.tips. It's about monitors, but hey-ho. I, I actually go. have that bookmarked, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> I've viewed that page more than once. <laughs> That's good to know. Good to yeah. know. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've viewed uh, that page yeah. more than once. It's, uh, it was good. The first time I got an ultra-wide monitor, uh, it, it was great, you know. From a dev point of view, Visual Studio running on there is is, is incredible, ultra sharp, really nice, lots of real estate. Uh, and then a couple of days later, I was doing a presentation at a user group and come to present the screen and thought, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, now I see the problem. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, I went looking and um, found, found your blog post. So, yeah. <laughs> nice, very nice. The, the last place to find me is um, anyone can book 30 minutes in my calendar anytime. So you just go to geos.to slash Kenny um, and you can choose a slot in my calendar. It'll book it out for both of us. Um, and I'm happy to jump on any call with anyone anytime to have a chat. Okay, perfect. Um, well, you know, thanks for joining uh, me to, to have a chat. It's been really insightful, really good to uh, speak to you after a, a little while as, as well. So yeah, thank you for joining Oh, it's been my pleasure. Um, and we shouldn't leave it so long next time. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. A, a, a good year or so is probably not uh, probably not good next time, other than a few Twitter interactions. Um, so, yeah. So thank you again for joining, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, goodbye.